Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. everyone and welcome new listeners to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. I'm Mark Ellis. I'm a comedian and a Rotten Tomatoes correspondent. And I'm Jacqueline Coley. I'm an editor at Rotten Tomatoes where I cover independent film and awards. I'm not sure if this is an independent film or film series that we're talking about. I know the second one isn't, but it did kind of come out of nowhere. So let's just go ahead and put the proverbial cat or parrot or any other creature out of the bag and say... Jacqueline, we're talking Ace Ventura today, and this is a special shout-out to one of our big fans, Jeff Barnes, who recommended that we talk about these Ace Ventura movies because as shocking as it is for these words to come out of my mouth, Ace Ventura 1 and 2, When Nature Calls, Jacqueline, are rotten on the tomato meter, and you can probably tell with the sound of my voice I am not happy about it, so we're talking both movies today. We're going to cover the sequel, we're going to cover the original, and we're going to get this thing sorted out. Yes, um, although I will go ahead and preview it, I am with the critics on this one. <laughs> sorry. Very, uh, very much so. Very, very much so. an influential movie on my life, and I'm very interested to talk to you and our special guests who we're going to bring in in just a minute about how they feel about this movie and maybe what this movie did for the career of our guest. It certainly had a huge influence on me. Before we get into any of that stuff, Jacqueline, what in the hell are movies Ace Ventura and Ace Ventura When Nature Calls about? Well, let's go ahead and start with the first one. The Ace Ventura film stars Jim Carrey, and it is basically a long-form comedic sketch in which Jim Carrey plays Ace Ventura. He is a Miami pet detective, and he has been enlisted to find the Miami Dolphins dolphin called Snowflake. And he is on the hunt to figure out who has kidnapped Snowflake and solve the crime. And funnily enough, that was so successful and people enjoyed him talking out of his butt so much that they gave him a sequel called Ace Ventura Nature Calls. After, <laughs> he did more than just talk out of his butt, okay? I mean, there was, there was, a was lot other more things, nuance. but, you know. But they gave him a sequel, <laughs> and in the sequel... Uh, he is on a spiritual quest after, you know, they reenact the events of Cliffhanger with a raccoon. He loses an animal. And so, therefore, he goes into the mountains to try, try and find enlightenment. And then he's enlisted for another solving of a crime of a kidnapped pet. It is a rare white 
bat that has very special guano, and he is going to bring it back to a tribe in Africa. And those are the two Ace Ventura Pet Detective movies, and that is about as smart a synopsis as I can give both those movies. I love sitting back and watching you do a synopsis on the Ace Ventura movies. But again, I I just think it is criminal that Ace Ventura Pet Detective is currently 49% rotten on the tomato meter. It does have a 57% audience score, which is closer to fresh, but still rotten. And it is the 25th anniversary of When Nature Calls, the sequel to Ace Ventura. And that's even lower. It's 25% rotten on the tomato meter, although we finally get into fresh territory with that audience score of 72%. So Jacqueline is giving us the hint that she's going to side with the tomato meter on these movies. I, you can probably tell by the tone of my voice, am not thrilled with what the tomato meter is. And I'm just going to go ahead and bring in our guest right now. We have a lot to get to, and I am so excited to bring one of my good friends to the show. He is a comedian extraordinaire. You've probably seen his numerous hour-long specials, his late-night TV appearances, his hit show, Sullivan and Son, ran for many years. And he has a new movie coming out that he directed and wrote and has a bunch of great comedic acts starring in it, and it is called The Opening Act. We have director Steve Byrne in the hizzy. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Um, do you... Mark, you you forgot Chocolatier. Um, oh, that's right. Th- thank you. Yeah, there's many things, but Chocolatier would be at the, at the forefront. I, I've worked... I've dabbled at Rocky Mountain uh, in the O'Hare Airport, so I spend my... <laughs> Yeah, that's how Steve and I met. I was I was working at Nuts on Clark, and um, <laughs> Steve, when I used to bring him up on stage, he'd say, "Hey, Mark, make sure you bring me up as the Candy Man." <laughs> throw you say me yeah. You know, Steve. Yeah. The the first time, and Jacqueline, I don't know if you knew this about Steve and I's shared history. Is that Steve's been a great comic for a long time, and in I want to say 2006, my first true road gig was Steve was kind enough to let me feature for him at the Fort Lauderdale Improv. And there must have been something, Steve, about that magic weekend back in 2006 where you were watching young comedian Mark Ellis open (laughs) for you on stage, and you said, you know what? Someday I'm going to write a movie about this called The Opening Act. Why was I so inspirational to the formation of this movie that is now coming out 14 years later? It's a great question, Mark, and I'm glad you brought that up. I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting to pounce on it. Um, I I thought if anybody in Hollywood knows, look, the film is about failures that stand-up comics have at the beginning of their career, and if anybody knows anything about failure, it's you. And that's why I, yeah, you were the wind beneath my wings in this process. Yes. <laughs> the movie is opening act, which is it, like you said, it's all about stand-up comedy and the matriculation and how long it takes, how frustrating it is. But the seed of any comic really gets planted when you're young and you see somebody else be funny, whether it's on TV, it's in person, it's an uncle telling a story and you're like, Oh, I want to do that. And for me, anyway, it was just it was like a comet when I saw Ace Ventura. So I want to get into all this stuff with both you and Jacqueline, but let's just give the folks at home the overall sense of how you feel about Ace Ventura and Ace Ventura When Nature Calls. Is it is it a fresh movie in Steve Burns' world? The first one is certainly fresh. The second one, it, it, it's borderline, but I would I would I would go fresh on on the second one as well because at the end of the day. I fucking laughed. 
I laugh so goddamn hard. It's so it's so good. Now I'm glad I got this homework assignment because I had not seen these films probably since they were you know on DVD back in the uh, you know whenever it came out, and and I was probably putting them in and getting drunk and going out to do my sets or whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, man. I really, really had a great time revisiting these films. Um, Jacqueline, so we have a fresh, a borderline fresh. I am very fresh, at least with the first movie. I, I think the maybe one, during the yeah. course of this conversation, we could unpack that. I might think Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, isn't nearly as good as the first one, so it might sneak into fresh. But you agree with the tomato meter here on both accounts, right, Jacqueline? Pretty much. I... I will say this. I actually think the scores should be reversed, that the scores for the first film should be the score for the second, because I would even say that film is a rotten movie, but borderline. And I would say maybe the tomato meter would be a little bit harsh if it was, it would be a little bit more accurate if it was in like high 50s, low 60s for the second one. But the first one, I just did not like it. I, I can't wow. really even put any anything else in it. I watched it, I know, as a child. I do not remember when. And I do remember enjoying it as a child, but watching it again as an adult for the first time since probably the mid-90s, it just came off so mean. There were uh, strong feelings from critics at the time this movie came out, and it, it was sort of a shock to audiences that this was even a movie that was being released. It was like, oh, the, the white guy from In Living Color is now going to be in a movie? Oh, okay, what is this all about? And the trailers, you couldn't really tell if it was going to be funny or not. You saw a lot of weird, wacky physical comedy, but you had no idea what the hell this movie even was. And I think a lot of critics were still wondering that after they exited the theater. And so for his special segment on critics take at the time and now, we go to expert Rotten Tomatoes review curator Tim Ryan. Tim, take it away. Thank you, Mark. Ace Ventura Pet Detective was Jim Carrey's first starring role, and a lot of critics needed to sort of learn what his whole shtick was. Ace Ventura Pet Detective is at 49% on the tomato meter with 61 reviews, and it has a 57% audience score. So what do the critics have to say? The great Jonathan Rosenbaum of the Chicago Reader in a rotten review said, The most obnoxious case of masculine swagger since Andrew Dice Clay, with just a tad of Paul Lind thrown in for spice, Jim Carrey defies you not to bolt for the exit. In a fresh review, Rita Kempley of the Washington Post wrote, A riot from start to finish, Carrey's first feature comedy is as cheerfully bawdy as it is idiotically inventive. Between Ace Ventura Pet Detective and the follow-up When Nature Calls, Jim Carrey had had a sort of monster run of movies. In 1994, he did The Mask and Dumb and Dumber, which were two films that got much better reviews than Pet Detective. Still, When Nature Calls came out, it got much worse reviews than Pet Detective. When Nature Calls is at 25% with 28 reviews, but it's at 72% audience score. So again, what do the critics have to say? In a rotten review, Marjorie Baumgarten of the Austin Chronicle wrote, Carrey is really more clown than an actor. And that's when the Jerry Lewis reflection comes in. Carrie is not just goony, he's beyond control, like someone in need of serious sedation, or at least some firm directorial guidance. In a fresh review, Gene Offmuth of Palo Alto Weekly wrote, This carry vehicle works best when we just get to watch Ace vamp around various watering holes with his fellow vertebrates, picking nits at one with his inner yak. So, while critics were warming to Carrie as a whole, they didn't necessarily love Ace Ventura 2, but fans were all over it at that point. So that's what the critics had to say. Alrighty then, back to you, Mark. Alright, so Tim is recounting, Steve, what a lot of critics said at the time, and it was sure. like, 
I don't think anybody could deny the comedic talent of Jim Carrey, but it was like they maybe didn't think he was utilizing it well or it wasn't as harnessed as they would have liked it to be, or maybe they just didn't think the movie itself lived up to the capabilities of its star. But for me anyway, I thought this was, I I didn't know that one human being could make a theater full of people laugh (laughs) that hard when I saw the first Ace Ventura. So quick backstory, I was maybe in eighth or ninth grade and this movie came out in February 94 and I wanted to go see, me and my buddy were debating which movie we're going to go see because the Shaquille O'Neal Penny Hardaway movie, Blue Chips, was in theaters and I was a big (laughs) basketball player. And I wanted to go see Blue Chips. I wanted to go see Shaq and Penny. I didn't I, I care. The movie with the guy from In Living Color just didn't look that funny to me. And my, my buddy's like, no, no, come on. Let's go see Ace Ventura. So I relented. We saw Ace Ventura, pretty packed theater. And it was howling the entire time from the opening scene where you just get this HDS delivery man and he's just beating the crap out of this package he's got to deliver. And you're like, what the hell are we watching? It was a new way to be funny. It was so inspirational to see one comedic comet just shoot into our galaxy like that. And I don't know that I've ever recovered from having one man make me laugh that hard. Do you have any fond memory, anything that stands out, Steve, of the first time you saw Ace Ventura? Was it a theatrical experience for you? Yeah, I, it was a theatrical experience for me. I was in college at the time. I, 94, right? 1994. 1994. So I was in college, and I remember there are two instances where I remember seeing a movie and fucking crying, okay? Crying. And one would be the first Ace Ventura, and the second would be uh, Austin Powers. And when Austin came out and did the musical montage and he was being all randy, I remember... I mean, the movie had just started and I was fucking crying. And the same thing with Ace Ventura. I mean, when he's talking out of his asshole, I remember being there with my buddy, John Penhollow, who to this day, you mentioned it, he gets this high cackle. I remember crying at that because you had never seen, you'd never seen anything like that in a lead. You know, usually that's, that's a, you know, a complimenting character or the wacky sidekick or something. But to literally have the lead be this committed for an hour and 25 minutes, uh, you know, you would think at some point, or, or even as I was revisiting, watching, I was going, I wonder, is this going to get tiring at some point? Is it going to, is it, are you going to be worn down by the fact that he's so committed to this? And <laughs> you just never do. I never got exhausted by the energy he was putting in, the commitment he put in this character. And there are so many, as 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 big as he is and as committed as he is, there are all these little, these tiny little nuanced things that he does when he's walking through the party with Courtney Cox and there's the string band playing and he just takes the guy's bow and does it as he's playing the, the violin <laughs> and he goes like that. That was something where he's just making so much out of nothing. He's walking past and he's thinking every step of the way, what can I do? And it was another callback in Ace Ventura 2 when he's walking through the dinner party again and there's three people standing there with sandwiches and he just does a press your luck with their sandwiches and he smacks them. And it's one of those things where it's three seconds and he just makes something out of nothing constantly. And I never got tired of it. I thought I would. I loved it. 
Yeah, there, there's no stone unturned when it comes to what this force is going to encounter next. And it's a great point you bring up, Steve, because I never really thought about it in the context of this is somebody who would be the wacky neighbor and they pop in for a scene. It's almost yeah. like if it's like Don Knotts in Three's Company, where it like you pop in for a scene, but we don't want the whole sitcom to be about you. <laughs> right. you know, it's like, all right, well, now let the why- normal people have their time. Courtney Cox was the perfect foil for this. You know, she was a perfect straight, straight man, as you would say, or straight person, I guess, these days in these politically correct times, whatever you want to call that, or the Dean Martin or Jerry Lewis. And she did it where it was almost like, as I was watching, I was like, that would normally be an outtake where she's kind of half laughing after the fourth take of this and probably the most grounded version of that take that they're, that they're taking. But she's having fun along the way, and she's not exhausted. She's not trying to top him. She's not trying to compliment him. She's just like, all right, this guy's out of his fucking mind, and I'm going to go along with it. And I thought that her performance was really underplayed, and I thought that was the perfect companion piece to everything that he was doing. She just, I I thought she did a great job. Jacqueline, does Jim Carrey's performance as Ace Ventura get exhausting for you? Jim was the best part of the movie, but... And I agree with you about Courtney Cox being a good foil. But again, and this is a running theme for me, whenever there's like male scriptwriters and they find the like literally the hottest girl in the room to be completely enamored by a dude that gives her no reason to like him every time it happens. <laughs> like when they kiss at the end of the movie, I'm like, why? Why is she kissing him? He's so talking out of his ass. Why? Why? Are you are you upset that Courtney Cox was banging Jim Carrey in a pet smart? Is that really what it's basically, about? Basically, yes. Basically, <laughs> like, why is this a thing? Why is this a thing? It doesn't need to be a thing. It doesn't make any sense. So as much but as isn't I that a movie character, though? Isn't isn't that a it's movie? It's a movie though? when like, a dude writes it. Yeah, but that's what <laughs> that's what movies are. I think it's kind of like I, I think like the great thing about films these days is you have these films like like Rebel Wilson did, where she's you know it was kind of the flip of it, right? She was taking the other the other side's perspective, uh, probably an underserved outlet of, of that perspective that you're saying. But I think ultimately it, it's like every guy dreams of walking down an alley and beating up six guys that are robbing the hot girl, right? And being yes, the hero for the day. Yes, there's wish fulfillment in movies, but I just yeah. think this is not the movie that needs that. I'm saying this is the movie where the guy is just an idiot talking out of his butt. Look, it's an SNL sketch that uh, SNL sketch that plays for about 125 minutes. And for what that is, it is enjoyable. I'm not going to say that it, I didn't laugh. But again, the, the jokes just felt really mean after a while, like especially the way that they cr- they treated uh, the Sean Young character. Like that was just distasteful in the whole thing, the way they treated the whole Jim Carrey in a tutu saying that he has Down syndrome. Like every time one of those jokes happen, and granted, you can call me too politically correct now, but it just made me feel sad because I thought somebody watching this is probably being hurt by watching it and it just didn't make it fun. So I'm sorry to be a downer about it, but like it just took me out of the enjoyment. I think if those jokes weren't so mean, I probably could have enjoyed the movie a little bit more. And that's probably why I enjoyed the second one a little bit more, but they just replaced the transphobia and the homophobia with a little bit of racism. But at least it was less. It's the enduring question about really any comedy once it gets to this age. I mean, like I said, we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of When Nature Calls. And so comedy is so hard to pull off anyway. It's so tough to make a theater full of people laugh in the moment. And then it's another level 
to get a movie that stands the test of time. Because I'm thinking about the movies that have made me laugh so hard I'm crying in the theater. And Ace Ventura was one of them. In Mm -hmm. the 90s, I would also say Naked Gun 2 and a half is up there. Yeah. His last movie, Liar, Liar. Another movie of Jim Carrey's Liar, Liar still holds up. It still holds up. It's definitely got a little misogyny in it, but it's definitely not near as mean as this one. And look, I'd even go back to Once Bitten. With all of its virginness, I still, I, I literally went back to Once Bitten after we did Vampire in Brooklyn. I'm like, yes, give it to me, Jim. I liked it. I liked it. But isn't it. that the, like, like that's the, that's the thing. That's why, I think that's why we're seeing more people gravitate towards seeing stand-up comics these days. Mm-hmm. Because stand-up comedy is the outlet for saying things you can't say because people out there are going to be offended. By, by something. And so Hollywood's not making comedies like they used to because people are taking things, I think, sometimes at face value. And sometimes, yeah, it's lazy writing. I agree with you. Uh, sometimes it's that, or sometimes it's just the easy joke. But, you know, when you have Todd Phillips saying, I don't want to make comedies anymore because you're going to get in hot water, we have to keep going back to these films of yesteryear and still appreciating them. But I think comedies. Comedy should be the one piece of real estate where you get to get away with that. You get to say all things are as long as people buy tickets. I don't think they should not make those movies. But if you're just asking me what I want to watch again, I'm not saying, hey, don't do these. Sure. I just don't want to watch it. And I don't have that much enjoyment when I do watch it. And if that calls me a stick in the mud, that's fine. But it just it wasn't funny to me. I do wonder if there's a function of of just how we see humor in general, because with stand up comedy, I don't know how you feel about it, Steve, but it's like I always look at doing a set as you're on stage and it's it's almost like we're telling secrets about the outside world. It's like this underground bunker and we're all laughing at everybody else. Like we're all in this thing together and we're just going to and we're going to poke fun at things going on outside. And with a movie, it's like, well, no, this movie's playing in theaters all across the world. And so now everybody is sort of in on the joke. And so can you make everybody universally laugh at the same time? And then can that hold up over a decade, over two decades, over 25 years? And that's a hard proposition. Yeah. It's it's nearly impossible to do. And the thing that still stands out about it is certainly, especially with the transphobia, the whole Sean Young, Einhorn is Finkel sort of thing, which we still quote all the time. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to put on to watch a full Sunday of NFL football and not have one of the announcers just make a Finkel is Einhorn reference because it's just so there in the zeitgeist. But when you unpack it, it's like, oh, yeah, well, that was that was definitely a product of that time. And And there was people that called it out. Like, again, big ups to Mark Hoffmeyer. But the L.A. Times said this is literally one of the meanest, most homophobic movies to ever be put out there. And probably, therefore, making it one of the worst movies ever. And that was contemporary. So I, my opinions, although they may come back right. as like 2020 PC politics, in 1995, people literally said the same thing. I wasn't, you know, people very much took it, took offense to it, I think. And that's well, there's always, there's victims in every decade. <laughs> oh, my God. Really? <laughs> really? It's not a victim. I, I, I just really... didn't like it. See, this is the difference. Is like, I am not a person that says that, Ace Ventura, Peck Detective, or When Nature Call doesn't need to exist. I'm not that person. That's right, the person right, yeah. I think you're railing against. But I'm telling you, I absolutely feel 100% in my juices to say, I don't think it's funny. And I think so, there's like, smarter, here's, funny here's, things to do. Yeah, like I think... Like, like your movie's very smart and very funny, and it's not mean. Well, <laughs> I appreciate hearing that. And I'll tell you, this, this goes to where we are these days, right? When we were casting that film, 
Okay, there were many talented stand-up comics that are actors. There's a finite pool, right? So I wanted to cast certain people in those roles. And when it came time to cast the feature, you know, we had to think about race. We had to think about what's the poster going to look like because you do want – look, these days you just can't have three white people be in a film, period. Um, even though maybe some stories serve that, you know, you're going to get raked over the coals, whether it's right, whether it's wrong, whether you agree, whether you disagree. When it came time to cast this film, when we were casting the Playboy feature act, Chris Palmer, I told him flat out, you cannot cast a young black talented comic actor in this role because there's going to be people that are going to say, Oh, so the black guy's the one that just wants to go out and party and bang chicks. And you've got to be aware of the optics these days, even when you're casting a film, which I find really, really upsetting that we, that, that what if I found somebody that was perfect for that job, that would have been great. That would have killed it. And Alex Moffat killed it. But you know, the fact that I couldn't do that, is is part of the hypocrisy of Hollywood of this diversity of thought, this diversity of outlets, this diversity of creativity. And then you're boxed in in certain moments when you can't do that because of the cancel culture, the PC culture and people getting offended out there, which I, I find um, me personally a little disheartening. But I, I understand it. I don't necessarily agree with it all the time, especially as a stand up comedian, um, because I think that we, you know, we operate under the model that a stand-up comedy club is the last vessel of free speech that exists in this world in this country well, it's well so that's what lenny bruce said so he was right smart guy. <laughs> when we and when we talk about ace ventura it's almost like there was because everybody knew jim carrey as he was he was the white guy on in living color and, and i mm -hmm. grew up watching in living color and 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 loved the show and that was the selling point that my buddy doug had for me is like, no, come on, we love In Living Color, let's go see this movie with the white Oh, you mean when your friend it. said that he's the only one you like on, on In Living Color, Mark? <laughs> that is not Racist. what I said. I was a big man. You could say that the precursor to Schmoes No was men on film. Is, <laughs> is, is that sketch? And then that begat Schmoes No. So seeing what I, I think that we, we wrestle with this a lot in movies is do we like the stars so much we're willing to forgive a lot of other things about the movie because there's more problematic issues with I think the first Ace Ventura than the second one for sure but I think that you watch it and and it, it's like what's the first thing that you say when you're done watching what's the first thing you say when you leave the theater do you say e that that whole tutu bit or that Einhorn thing or do you walk out and you say who the hell was that guy? Because yeah. I'm used to comedic leads like that are great, like like Bill Murray, where th they're still normal, regular people within the context of the movie. And this was just like it was like watching Robin Williams as Mork, where yeah. it's just this total different sort of thing. And it was so funny. And it speaks to your point, too, Jacqueline, because as a freshman in high school watching that you do see that ace is very successful he he ends up with the lady and he ends up hanging out with dan marino and saving the day and you're like oh i just need to walk like that and talk out of my ass occasionally <laughs> and say all righty then and so it does infiltrate your head that oh stand up or or comedy or just 
a sense of humor is the way to get the things that I want in life. And yeah. I got to say, it hasn't worked out bad for me. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, do you want to prescribe to the idea that you are the 007 of pet detectives? Because that's what um, Jim Carrey wanted to say about Ace Ventura. And look, he does have his own eccentric coolness to it. And in the, I would say, abstract there's nothing wrong with the Ace Ventura character. In fact, I think there would have been a really interesting Mork and Mindy style Ace Ventura show. And I think that also fits the fact that the screenwriter of this spent most of his time in television and that's why it feels that way. Um, yeah, I just, yeah, it just doesn't hold up to me, especially the first one. The second one is a little bit better. I definitely laughed without feeling icky a lot more in that one. Um, it was funny. Tommy Davidson, as racist as that character is, I had to laugh. It was absolutely hilarious with him uh fighting jim carrey in that scene um so yeah look there are there are moments of this that i definitely found is enjoyable i love jim carrey and a lot of the things that he's done even things that other people would despise like once bitten um life like earth girls are easy which is another problematic fave from back in the day but yeah this one just it was just not fun especially the first one like the first one i was just kind of like okay let's just get to the end of this if you want to talk about great physical comedy and hearkening back to some of jim carrey's heroes in his own life like jerry lewis yeah the scene in ace ventura when nature calls when he's coming out of the rhinoceros's butt it's just an all time like how is this <laughs> yes. because everything and that is was- like a moment in the movie that i absolutely loved loved that it's- moment Great. It is just such pure comedic gold. And I'll be honest, watching Ace Ventura When Nature Calls felt different for me because Jim Carrey had like the best run arguably any actors ever had in one given year in 1994. He had Ace Ventura in February. He had The Mask in the summer. And then he had Dumb and Dumber around Christmas. And that's all in one. That is those are like three in golf. Those are like three major championships, and you are automatically a Hall of Famer. You got the triple crown, yeah. Yeah. That one year. And, and then I will he say, went on. Last two are loved. Even though Dumb and Dumber is problematic, too. Love those last two. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. I think, yeah, it, it, Dumb and Dumber is, is I think, holds up as the funniest movie that he's ever done still. But Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, hit me different because I had seen Cable Guy by then and we had seen different shades of Jim Carrey. And I remember going to see Batman Forever and being so excited about Val Kilmer's Batman and just being so let down by that movie. But the one silver lining was during Batman Forever, they ran the first trailer of Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. 
And like, that's how big Jim Carrey was, was Jim Carrey was so big and making so many movies that you'd go see a Jim Carrey movie and then you'd see a trailer for the next Jim Carrey movie, yeah. which was Ace Ventura 2, which came out around Thanksgiving. And I remember seeing When Nature Calls and just thinking, for whatever, it's still funny to me and he's still great. But Steve, it felt to me like it was now a guy doing an impression of Ace Ventura as opposed to just embodying Ace Ventura. And maybe that's just because now we had expectations going into part two. No, I think I know what the problem is. Okay. First off, I want to, I want to, I'll tell you my, my issue with Ace Ventura too. And I, and to, to, well, I'll go to that first. I think what, what made Ace Ventura great is I remember when I did that amazing Jonathan document, documentary, David Copperfield was telling me the difference between David Copperfield and the amazing Jonathan. And for those that don't know Jonathan, Jonathan is kind of this makeshift comic that's making things up on the fly. And like he, it's looked like he just walked through a hardware section of Walmart and slapped things together and put on a great show. Whereas Copperfield is Disney production-esque, right? He's got, he's got the money. It's sleek. It's modern. It's cool. And I think that what, what made that first Ace Ventura great was that it was low budget. They didn't have a budget. And so you're taking your Jim Carrey's bigger than any scene. Jim Carrey's bigger than any moment. Just put him on the on the scene. You don't need these grandiose landscapes. You don't need a bigger budget. And when you get to Ace Ventura two, the cliffhanger thing. You know he's driving a monster truck at the end. Like the situations are bigger than Jim Carrey, and that's why to me. I was fighting against enjoying it as much as I loved the first one because you put him in a shitty basement, you put him at a, at a posh party. He's bigger than any situation possible in that movie. But he got swallowed up by, by the budget. I think they were like, all right, now we can spend money. Now let's do things. It's like, that's the last thing you do. Keep the, keep the world smaller. Jim Carrey is always going to be bigger than your, than your world, especially as Ace Ventura, who's this hyperactive cartoon on steroids. So I, that was my issue with it. And to go to something Jacqueline was talking about when you guys were talking about being mean, like Dumb and Dumber was great. Dumb and Dumber 2 was mean, I thought. That's why I didn't enjoy that film as much. And it goes back to the old adage of there's people that love Tony Clifton. There's people that love Andy Kaufman. And I never loved Andy Kaufman as much. There were things that he did that I respected. But at the end of the day, the easiest thing to do is to be Tony Clifton. It's easy to go in and piss people off. It's easy to go in and take somebody's drink and pour it on their head and get a reaction. The hardest thing to do in this world is to make somebody laugh. And we could do it for 90 minutes in a film like Dumb and Dumber, like Liar Liar, like Ace Ventura. That's why we're still talking about these films because it's really, really fucking hard. That was great. I, that was like, I'm ready to run through a brick wall for you, Steve. I'm ready to get on that <laughs> stage right now and do the best 15 minute set I've ever had. He he was the king of comedy. Is, is there in the 90s anyway? Is, is there a scene that sticks out to either one of you as that you would point as to like, okay, well, this is why this movie works. I mean, we we know the the Einhorn is Finkel thing and that really is the dichotomy of the first Ace Ventura to me anyways because that scene where he discovers what's actually going on 
and we see all that transphobia within that the physical comedy with the plunger on his face and everything it's it's brilliant physical comedy but it's in the context of oh this is a really hateful sort of message we're sending I so think like when he when he solved the crime right when he's in the apartment with sean young and all the cops and they've been shitting on him every time he comes to the precinct you're just seeing this epic showcase of him he takes a deep breath he dispels the logic. He goes outside to the window. He's opening and closing and singing in this operatic tone. And he comes back in and he becomes this Southern preacher. And he's dispelling exposition in the most comedic, fun, entertaining way in only the way he could. And you're seeing all these different beats even of him being physical, being animated. The glass door thing to this day will make me laugh as hard as him getting shanked with those two spears and just pointing and screaming and pointing and screaming and then eventually falling back and passing out. It's like <laughs> those are things that I just wonder how many times they did those takes. But that to me is the scene that embodies like Jim Carrey and the success of Ace Ventura, to me at least. She said she heard a scream. Is that right, ma'am? Right. And you said you had to open the balcony door when you keyed into the room? Yeah, that's true. You're certain you had to open this door? Yeah, I'm certain. What's the point, Ventura? Only this. Uh, Jacqueline, what's something that you can point to from either or both of these movies that says that's why these movies aren't as beloved by me as they are from some other people? Um, well, I mean, look, there's a lot I could put into the like, yeah, no column, but I will give you one from each one. In Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, we've already talked about it, but the rhino pooping scene, like, seriously, that is gold. It is a scene that you would go back to on YouTube and laugh again and again and again, and I will never take anything away from that scene. Or the Tommy Davidson scene, again, problematic, but died laughing through the whole thing. Um, in the first one, I can definitely say that I know why it worked. That movie is engineered like old school 70s television shows like Welcome Back Cotter to get people to put it into the lexicon. In the first five minutes, and I clocked it, Ace says his lehu zahur. He says, take care now, bye bye then. He also says, alrighty then. He says like literally four of the five catchphrases that became synonymous with Ace Ventura in that first five minutes. And within the first 20, he does all of them. So if you're a young kid watching that, right within the first five minutes, not only is the stage set, but they give you a language that you are now going to be a part of. And that to me is what people were talking about after they left. That was a close one, ladies and gentlemen. Unfortunately, in every contest, there must be a loser. The who? The her. Like, okay. I just remember the teenage kids be quoting all of the quotes from this and talking out of their butts. Oh, my poor mom had to deal with me talking like Ace Ventura for probably a good two to three months after I saw the first one. Everything was all righty then. And, <laughs> yeah. and those sort of things. And I, I, maybe my mom was happy that it got Marky, me out of Marky, my talking. Can you please make sure you lock the door when you're going to do that? All righty then, mom. I'll leave Honey, my sock on the handle. You're, Honey, you're singing opera out of your asshole at dinner, and and that's just not appropriate <laughs> exactly. for Grandma. Excuse me. I'd like to ask you a few questions. All right, that's it. 
Now it's my turn. Five minutes alone. That's all I need. Come on. Better look alive. I'm horns on our way down. Whoa. Oh, oh, Come on now, Ace. Please, man. Please. What's the matter, Emilio? Afraid I'll make a stink? But this is the thing. It works. And it especially works for young men. Men In under the age of 17, over the age of, like, they they can get that and men that are in their 40s and men that are in their 40s but <laughs> but at that time the reason why it's so beloved now is the men who saw it at that time i think still have a love and affection for it because they saw it in young you know goofing out sure. there with their guy but i'll tell you like my my father-in-law and my father both saw mcgruber <laughs> and it's the last thing I ever thought that they would be like, hey, have you heard of this film, MacGruber? Each of them have told me that they love that movie. And I think yeah. that that kind of silly, ridiculous, I know what I'm doing protagonist that, that does not know what he's doing, it, it's a great foil. And <laughs> MacGruber is another example. He's, you know, you're seeing kind of the, these extreme versions of a spy or an extreme version of a detective that I think all guys at the end of the day really kind of want to be at some point. I think that I, I I think that I would still go uh, fresh on the tomato meter with Ace Ventura too, but I'm going to disagree with my beloved co-host Jacqueline, because in that first five minutes you're talking about where he's doing all the classic Ace Ventura catchphrases that we now know that to me felt like you're watching a a stand-up comic or or to Steve's movie even in, in opening act the the headliner played by Cedric the Entertainer is known for his catchphrase that he said on his sitcom all those years and that at the beginning of when nature calls felt to me like it w- it was like dice doing the nursery rhymes or something where where you're there to go see somebody do their thing, but it's not, you're not waiting for them to do something new. You're just waiting. It was like watching like Journey play their, their greatest hits, except with comedy, it just doesn't really work that way. And it felt to me like it was, you hired somebody to be Ace Ventura at my birthday party. And so they knew to do all the catchphrases and when to do them, but it just, it, it didn't feel as authentic. And even rewatching it, it just, it felt like it was, more stale. I think you're the not the only one. I mean, uh, Jim Carrey uh, has obviously done television and movies since then, and he's actually talked about um, Ace Ventura, and he kind of has like a little bit of middle of the road. He says, "Look, the transphobia and the homophobia stuff is actually making fun of that sort of toxic masculinity." And he even said, "Like that's the comedy of it is that these guys are so homophobic and transphobic that they can't see their eyes for their face, and they miss the fact that literally their lieutenant is." The perpetrator. And he literally talks about how that's the joke. The joke is not, hey, let's make fun of this person. It's more like, look at how stupid these big burly men are, that they are so thrown off by this this situation that they're not really catching the whole big picture. So in that respect, I'm like, you know what? There's something there for that. It's a little too 90s and too broad to really get deep into that. But there is something there to that. But he does admit that there are other parts of the movie that he does regret and would not do today. So I'm like, look, if Jim Carrey, the guy who literally made this career on it, has good but conflicting opinions about it, I'm okay with the same. I think that's how we all look at any comedic legacy. And you can go as far back in time as you want. You could even ask comedians like like Steve or myself, where you look at the first hour special you did, or you look at the, the first jokes you wrote when you were starting out, and you're like, oh, yeah, even if it's not problematic, even if it's just not that good, or I think every comic watches themselves or you listen to yourself to a set and you say, oh, I definitely could have done that better or I can tag that with this. Or there's always a way to improve, at least in our heads, what we just did. 
Yeah, but I think that's part of it, right? It's just like we're all learning as we go. We're all getting better as we go. And yeah, I mean, there's certainly jokes I did back in the day that uh, wouldn't hold up today. But is it still a good joke? To me, it is. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of shit jokes I have for sure. Um, <laughs> but but I think, yeah, I mean, the social norms are changing almost every two to three years. And it's like you're either going to keep up with that and then you're and then all of a sudden you're capitulating and and telling a story narratively via film or you're to doing your act and then you're agenda driven. And I think, again, part of what I was talking about before is that I don't want to be constrained. If I feel like it should be this, it should be that. And if I want to talk about this, I'll try to talk about that. You're damned if you do. You're damned if you don't. Bill Bird did a great monologue on SNL a few weeks ago. He got raked over the coals. But when 30% of the country is on board with cancel culture and 70% is not, it's like, I think there are a lot more people out there that are just like, look, if a joke has the capacity to ruin your day, you live a blessed life. Get on with it. There's so much <laughs> else to worry about in the, in these, in these days. And it, again, you know, they're jokes, they're do jokes done from the perspective of somebody here that's selling tickets. And if you don't like it, you don't have to buy it. But entertainment these days is so fractured. It's not communal anymore. Like we, we all at least heard of Ace Ventura. We all at least had a friend that was quoting it. But nowadays it's so fractured and niche out there. I think there's something for everybody these days. And I think that as much as you could buck up against the diversity agenda, there's people that are for people are against it. Everybody's got a voice now. Everybody does have an outlet, um, which I, th I, th I think is good. Is there a chance that we get another Jim Carrey that comes down the pipe like it, it, it hits in this way where it's somebody that we we know is talented but then th they have the movie come out or a year like 1994 and it's just oh now all of a sudden this is the person on the map because a lot of times you have comedy superstars that you feel a little bit like it's it's getting shoved down your throat where it's like no the studio thinks this is big so now they're going to throw this person at you where maybe it was just my naivete back in the day because I wasn't I had no idea where even Hollywood was on a map barely and I just Jim Carrey just appeared is there I mean, think about it like go back that go back a few years right you had Ben Stiller Adam Sandler Will Ferrell Jim Carrey Vince Vaughn you have all these comedic leading men and nowadays Kevin Hart that's it I mean that that tells you something that tells you about how scared Hollywood is to make these bigger, broader comedies, and, and they're doing it. But to, to your point, I don't think we'll ever get somebody like Jim Carrey again that has three hits like that within a year with Hulu, Netflix, theaters dying, and the only way people go to movie theaters is franchise tentpole films. I don't know that you'll ever get somebody as big and as relevant as Jim Carrey was you know, in the, in the 90s. It's interesting to hear Jim Carrey talk now because he's very philosophical about his career, as Jacqueline was mentioning earlier. And he just he, he has I love when people get enough perspective on their own career to talk about it again, because there's times when I'm sure he hated talking about Ace Ventura and he wanted to move on and he was doing more dramatic stuff. And and yeah. now when it's like, you know what, I do have a legacy now. I have the statues. I have the rings. I got the championships. So now let's look back fondly on what got me here 
year. And Lucy, we actually, Rotten Tomatoes interviewed Jim Carrey when Sonic the Hedgehog came out. And Sonic yeah. the Hedgehog, I think, is, is worth bringing up in this conversation because his character is clearly the villain in Sonic. And so you could argue maybe just as unlikable as some parts of Ace Ventura. But you got to see Jim be like 1990s Jim again. And it yeah. was so cool to hear him talk about that. Yeah, we, we interviewed him last year for the movie, and um, nobody really knew how it was going to do, so everyone was a little nervous. People were nervous about how he was going to be. Yeah, were we going to laugh at him? Yeah. Was, was, he, was it going to yeah. feel like I felt sometimes watching Ace Ventura 2, where it's always just trying to do what he used to do, but I, I felt he was, I, I, it was like we were back in the 90s with Jim Carrey. Yeah, and so we, we you know, I, I did the interview that day, and I asked him, you know, how was it returning to comedy after all those years? I'll play a little clip for you guys to listen to, but um, he ultimately talked about, you know, he's that the silliness is a part of him. He'll always be attracted to that kind of role and he hopes to do more. Actually, I think he kind of hopes to bring it back. And I think his role as Dr. Robotnik in that film was him kind of going, I want to come back to the, the bending the face and doing weird things with my body and, so take a listen. I love it all. I love all the different colors, you know, and and something like this, you know, I've been doing some serious stuff and then and then something like this comes along and it's just an opportunity presented to me by the universe, you know. It's like a, it's a gift. It's just uh oh, uh you know, somebody left the corral door open. <laughs> and uh, you know, the Mustang must run. You know, so it's uh it's really kind of fun. It's really kind of great and it's a it's a part of me that never leaves. You know, people don't have to worry that I'm never going to have that part of my brain that wants to just have some silly fun, you know? When he does the Grinch face, it's incredible. Oh, because yeah. He, like, turns it, and it's like, oh. I th- everywhere. Everybody stole that image and yeah. stole our interview. So that, that's from the, the interview, but he, he literally was, we were talking about Halloween costumes, and he literally said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll be out, and, you know, parents will say to their child, hey, look. That's the guy that played the Grinch, and he'll and then he bent his he literally moved his face into the Grinch face, and then the everyone's like, wait, we thought that was a costume. That's how good. That's how that's how physically genius this man is. It's like he really was. He is the rubber faced man. I hope we get more stuff like that in the future. You know, the movie on the tomato meter, Ace Ventura: When Nature Calls, it's it's lower than the original Ace Ventura. But the audience score is fresh, and it's the only fresh thing that either Ace Ventura movie can put <laughs> on their resume. Why do you think the there's such a disparity between the audience score and Tomato Meter for the second one? I think the second one leaned into what it knew that it did well. Like, look, the first one was good because they let Jim Carrey do Jim Carrey things throughout it. And things that he's done in other places, this was just an entire showcase for him to be as crazy as possible. I think that's also why in the and the first one, um, there was a lot of things that were probably him writing it on the spot. That's why he got a credit. Whereas in the second one, they already knew what he did well, and it was just already built into the writing of it. And the writer of the second is a pretty well-accomplished comedy writer. Um, and so I personally felt that the second one was just, it just leaned into what it did well, which is just comedic, tell the jokes, make them do funny things. I don't really care about this whole really solving the bat thing unless it serves a bigger joke. And I actually kind of liked it that way because it kept it simple. And the butt of the joke was always ace in the second one. And so it felt less mean, usually. 
Well, he wasn't the butt of the joke. He was definitely the thing that people were making fun of. Like the monks being like, leave, white man, leave. Like, that's him, you know? And and everything else is him as sort of, I think, the, the target of it. And it helped. Steve, your movie, The Opening Act, is doing well. And a lot of people are watching it right now. And it's also fresh on the tomato meter. So... You can say this with I'll a come back in a year. I'll come back in a year when Rotten Tomatoes got it wrong and we'll just dump on it. <laughs> yeah, Steve, why did everybody love the opening act? I mean, you go back and watch it. None of it holds up a year later. Yeah, Jimmy at, Jimmy at the end of the film should have gotten raped by a silverback gorilla like in Ace Ventura 2. <laughs> That Steve. was funny though. That, that was, was funny. funny though, because it was him, and it, like yeah. the, the animals just being an animal. That's my that's my <laughs> note for any comedic performance. And I've even said that to Steve when he gets off stage at the comedy store. I'm like, hey, Steve, the set was good. Uh, you didn't come out of a rhinoceros's ass, so I can't really say it was great. <laughs> but um, if if you look at the disparity historically, or at least the stigma with comedies is that critics may not love it as much as audiences. Is sure. there, what is, what's your mind as a filmmaker and as a obviously accomplished stand-up comic, what's your, do you have a rationale for that? Well, I think, I think it's rooted back in, in the fact that it's what we celebrate, right? When, when the Martian with Matt Damon wins an award for being a comedy, it's like, this is, <laughs> I don't know what world we live in, but look, comedy is never going to get the accolades. Comedy is never going to get the awards. But what it does do is move tickets, right? And people go out and they celebrate it. And nine times out of 10, if you're bored on a Sunday and you want to watch something, you're going to put on Ace Ventura. You're going to put on Stripes. You're going to watch The Nice Guys. And you're not going to watch Schindler's List because who wants to go through that again? You're not going to watch Million Dollar Baby. You're not going to watch Hotel Rwanda. Are they great films? They're fucking fantastic films. But nobody wants to do that shit again. The Joker with Joaquin Phoenix, the minute I saw it, I was like, it's great. I, I, I thought it was awesome. I'll never watch it again because I never want to put myself through that mental trauma of feeling awful and icky. And, it, you know, it's just it's a horrible world that they that they created. And it's so impactful. It haunts you. But I'd rather watch The Nice Guys 100 times than any other films that win an award. Yeah, that rewatchability, I think, plays with audiences and it, there's just something that you can't really put your finger on why something makes you laugh. And that's part of the magic of comedy in general is that we can't we, we can't quantify it down to its atoms. We, we can't get it down to the molecules, because if we did that, it might take some of the magic away from why we're laughing at the first place. But for Jim Carrey, I think the, the physicality, the presence, the personality, the, the overwhelming as soon as this person walks into the room the eyes are all upon them. It just it all added up to this character that the Ace Ventura script was going around Hollywood for a while, and they just really didn't know what to do with it. And there's all these stories about who was originally going to star as Ace Ventura, and it's it, it's pretty crazy to think of somebody like Ray Liotta as Ace Ventura, Ray. the pet. <laughs> I mean, they, it, 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 Jim Carrey and uh, I think David, yeah. David Alan Greer helped him. They were, they were basically writing, rewriting the Ace Ventura script at nights after they were done shooting in living color for the fifth season. And so it, it was just, it, it, it was a fly by night sort of operation. And the, if you go back in time with, with Jim Carrey, 
this is where I, I kind of nerd out a little bit. And I can also ask Steve about the opening act is that he was opening for Rodney Dangerfield and, and he was known, he kind of made his name as a comic on him being able to do impressions. So he'd get up and he'd do like, you know, Charles Bronson or uh, Clint Eastwood, stuff like that. And eventually Dangerfield told him like, look, you, you, you the impressions are good, but you're not being yourself on say You're not, you're not showing who you really are. And so the audience is only going to, that's only going to get you so far with an audience. And so Jim just made the decision to ditch doing all these impressions and instead just be himself, be his wacky physical self. And he was bombing and, and he just couldn't get it. And Dangerfield still let him open for him on the road, even though the audiences were not responding because Rodney, who was maybe the most giving of any comic that has ever lived to new generations of comics he just knew that Jim could stick with it and he knew what what potential he had. And I think a lot of that was realized first on In Living Color. And then when you see Ace Ventura, it's just like this this flower is just blooming. Whether the movie itself is perfect or holds up is a different conversation in a way that just talking about Jim Carrey and his announcement to the world that I'm the new comedy superstar. Yeah, look, comedy is rooted in failure. I mean, that's why you never want to see a good looking guy tell jokes. You, you know, that's why when Rodney Dangerfield goes to the premiere of Caddyshack, Chevy Chase gets out of a limo, Ted Knight gets out of a limo, and you see a tow truck pull up with a, with a shitty looking car, and Dangerfield gets out of that shitty looking car at the film premiere. And it's no respect, right? I, I think that's, that was always one of my favorite Dangerfield stories is that he, he knew. And, and so the opening act does explore the facets of, of showing people how symbiotic failure is with the eventual fingers crossed success of any stand-up comic. You've got to go through all those dings. You got to take your, you got to take, you know, I, I, I know, you know, there are certain comics I know that are known for a certain thing. And the minute they stray out of it and they try to be themselves, they get punched in the face and it's back to square one. But if they just stick with it, they have the tools to become that great stand-up comic, but I, I think that it, it's 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 fucking hard. Again, it's hard. It's hard to make people laugh, and when th- when it does work, yeah, you do get rewarded for it. I do want want to bring it back to to your new movie opening act, which is available on VOD everywhere right now. Because what we were talking about with the matriculation of Jim Carrey and his route to stand up, where you can crush early on in your career in stand up, you can have yeah. a either a five minute set that works, or you have one impression or one crowd work bit that you do that just always kind of kills. But at some point, isn't it necessary to experience the failure? that the opening act in the movie is going through that fateful weekend when he's working at the improv. Sure. I I think again, failure is just so synonymous with it. And I've been doing this for 23 years and there are still nights I've gotten in my car. I've left Pasadena. I drive 30 minutes to the comedy store. I catch up with you and Sebastian, whoever's in the hallway. I write something in my trusty notebook. Like I did my notes with the movies uh, that I had to watch. And then I go up on stage and I execute them. And it doesn't go well. And failure in stand-up comedy when you're starting off is immense. It will keep you up at night. It will, if you have a set the next week, it's all you'll think about for six days. After 23 years, it still hurts, but it's like getting permanent mark on your face. It's going to wash off, but it's going to stay with you for just a little bit. (laughs) 
Mm. It's that embarrassing X on your wrist, and you're like, yeah, I went to a club last night, <laughs> and right. yeah. um, it's not going to wash off for a little while. Um, <laughs> we're going to bring it back with uh, our thank you to Steve. And, and Steve, just so I could do this publicly at least once before I go back to making fun of you, it's just been so great to have somebody like you, who's a much older comic, um, shepherd <laughs> me. And and, just, and you, you take, I've been overseas with you. We've done USO tours together. We've been on the road, and it's just a great time anytime we, we get to catch up and watching opening act. I, maybe I felt like some audience members would if, if you know who the person is and you really want it to be good. And I've seen this movie in a couple different stages, and it was always a good movie. But to be there at the comedy store when we did the friends and family screening, it just it's such a tight piece. It is so true to the nature of how stand-up comedy feels from the comedian perspective, which is impossible to capture on screen. It, it's maybe the most accurate representation. I'd put it right up there with Jim Carrey and Man on the Moon, where you see that behind shot of him bombing yeah. at the improv at the beginning. And it's like, no, that's what stand-up is. It's a bunch of bored faces staring at you, waiting for you to make him laugh. And it just it, it was so honest and endearing to what our silly sport of stand-up is. So I encourage well, everybody you. to go check it out. It's on VOD wherever you enjoy VODing. And um, you can actually check out the Ace Ventura flicks on Fandango Now and Voodoo. Uh, you can follow Steve on all his social media and upcoming appearances. Uh, what is your, uh, your your Twitter, your Instagram, all that good stuff? Everything is at Steve Byrne Live. Oh, well, I'm another at Mark Ellis Live. live. Yeah. Another live. Look yeah. at and that. are you Jacqueline Coley Live? Uh, no, I'm that Jacqueline because I'm that girl that talks about Hello. movies. Yep. And also, um, besides going on to my Instagram and telling me how much you love my 70s uh, pictures that I always post, I would love it if you guys would also email our producer Lucy at rtiswrong at rottentomatoes.com. And please, please, please let us know how we're doing. Also, if you have any requests, remember this episode, Ace Ventura, was because one of you guys requested it. So, Put your your uh, requests out there. We are just like TRL. We listen to the fans, and uh, maybe we'll see what you suggested on a later episode. Big shout out to Jeff Barnes too for recommending uh, this movie series for us to talk about. Thank you so much, Jeff. And next week, folks, hey, Jeff. If you thought two movies was a lot to tackle in one podcast, we are going to go through <laughs> the entire Harry Potter film library Whoa. in one massive episode. What's our favorite? picture from Hogwarts. What's our least favorite? Do they all kind of run together? Do I have to rewatch eight movies in the next week? The answer <laughs> yes. to all those is yes. a big definite maybe. So that's going to do it for us here on the Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong podcast for Steve Byrne and his movie, The Opening Act. Check it out wherever you enjoy VODing. And my esteemed co-host, Jacqueline Coley, I am merely Mark Ellis, and I'll see you on the road in 2021. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.